Thank you so much for joining us again this morning. My name is Theodora Lau. I'm the founder of Unconventional Ventures and host for the One Vision podcast. Also released a book last year um, called Beyond Good, How Technology is Leading a Purpose-Driven Business Revolution. Thank you for joining us and I'll be your host today. Before we start, as I mentioned before, I want to talk about a few housekeeping items for our audience. On the screen, you'll see our photos. You can click on each one of the picture so you can follow our speakers. You can message them. And during the conversation, if you hear something that resonates, be sure to use that react button in the bottom right and let us know. And now I would like to ask our speakers to introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Jessica. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us today. Happy Tuesday. My name is Jessica Scott. I am an associate partner with IBM on all things sustainable supply chains, but really bringing the best that IBM has to offer across our services, our technology, our software to our clients across industries to help them accelerate their sustainability agendas. Thank you, Jessica. And Sue? Hi, happy Tuesday again. Happy New Year. I'm Sue Shumway. I'm uh, the sustainability product manager for IBM Z Systems and Linux One Emperor, uh, Enterprise Servers at IBM. Um, I'm in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I've been interested in sustainability my whole life and environmental consciousness, but I've only been in this role for a little over a year, but very happy to join you guys and excited for the conversation. Thank you for joining us, Sue. And last but not least, Tom. Hey folks, Theodora, thanks for inviting me. My name is Tom Raftery. I'm a influencer and in things like sustainability and technology, uh, IoT, those kind of things. I run a number of podcasts. Uh, one podcast I run is called the Digital Supply Chain Podcast. I publish two episodes a week, every Monday and Friday on that one. And the other podcast I run is called the Climate Confident Podcast. And that's a weekly podcast, which puts out a new episode every Wednesday. I love the new name, by the way, Tom, Climate Confidence. <laughs> I spotted that last week. I'm like, oh, this is spot on. So thank you so much for joining us. And let's go ahead and get started. Now, right before the new year, I read something that was really interesting that came out from Singapore. The Singapore government just appointed their first government chief sustainability officer in order to drive their green efforts. And as Singapore's first government chief sustainability officer, gosh, that's a mouthful, Mr. Lim Tung Liang, he will be driving sustainability efforts such as Singapore Green Plan 2030 to put the country on the path to become more resource efficient and climate resilient. I think that's a fascinating story because it's about time that we put a price tag, if you will, on climate change and actually move us in the right direction. I spotted a news article yesterday on, from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston that said that from their recent study, one degree rise in average temperature will result in 3.2 increase in per capita spending. For, for their city. So that is a cost related to climate change. And yes, we do need to move forward in putting a plan together. Um, curious for, for you guys, do you think this is something that perhaps other countries would also follow and pick up as well? Let's uh, start with you, Jessica. Thanks, Theodore. I agree. Definitely a fascinating story. And 
you know, I think encouraging and positive that we're seeing governments not only commit in terms of establishing regulatory and compliance, um, you know, that type of accountability for private sector, but also really stepping up as the public sector and holding themselves accountable as well. But I think to your point, I hope to see other countries pick this up, but I also think it's the right countries because, you know, not all countries are contributing equal to that rise in temperature and to emissions. And not all countries are equally feeling the brunt of that impact. Um, Coming out of COP27, I think it was very interesting to see which countries were the loudest in terms of making commitments, which countries were the loudest in terms of how their own communities and populations are being impacted by the environmental changes. So I think there's certainly a difference in who's contributing and who's bearing the brunt. And in turn, I think that when we see and hope to see more countries picking this up, it'll be interesting who. Um, And I also think, you know, ESG and sustainability responsibility should certainly be embedded across different government officials' roles and goals. But there's certainly something to be said about having a dedicated leader that's really driving accelerated, coordinated, and focused process, progress. Um, So I I think it, it just really helps demonstrate that especially for Singapore and hopefully other nations, again, they really understand their role, their contributions and accountability beyond just the private sector. I think we're really seeing that shared accountability is going to be the best path. So um, that's shared accountability across private and public is definitely a, a change and a shift that I hope we'll see more of. It's well said, shared accountability. I love that word and a great way to start the new year. Tom, what about you from your perspective, uh, especially in the EU? Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it's it's interesting because um, many of the governments here in the EU already have ministers or departments with the responsibility for climate change. So it's not, not really that new here. And in fact, Looking at the plans that Singapore has, they're a little bit um, nebulous. Uh, So, for an example, if we look at the plans they have, they talk about requiring all newly registered cars to be of cleaner energy models from 2030. What's cleaner energy models? You know, that, 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 that makes no sense or it's very... Uh, open to interpretation. There's nothing concrete there. It's very nebulous. You know, uh, if we look at what the EU has said for kind of the 2030 plans, the EU has required, literally required, it's a mandate across all 27 nations of the EU, required all 27 nations to reduce their emissions 55% by 2030. Now, that's enormous. I mean, just to put that in context, during the lockdowns in 2020, we dropped our emissions 7%. And then those emissions went back up 5% in 2021. So between 2020 and 2021, we had a net 2% reduction in emissions. And now we have to reduce them. Well, that 55% is a bit misleading, actually, if I if I just go back for a second, because that 55% is based on our 1990 baseline. And in the last couple of decades, we have actually reduced against that baseline uh, 24%. So that leaves 31% outstanding to get down between now and 2030. But of course, this is 2023. Uh, this is January 2023. It means we have uh, just under seven years left 
to reduce our emissions in the EU by 31%. The scale of the change that will be required to meet that requirement is, you know, off the charts. I mean, it, it's unheard of, that level of systemic change that will be required. And it is that. It is systemic change. And that's not going to happen unless it is mandated, unless it is pushed down, unless uh, governments pass regulations, and they will have to because it is, as I said, mandated on all 27 nations across the EU. So there's going to be huge legislative changes take place between now and then to make sure that happens. So we need to, not just in the EU, but everywhere, we need our politicians to step up because they have been sadly lacking in taking action on this over the last couple of decades. So uh, it's good to see Singapore starting to step up and uh, having someone take responsibility for this. And absolutely, while it's happening in the EU, it does need to happen in other geos as well. I'm still digesting seven years. Um, <laughs> Tom, that's <laughs> It's less. It's six, six years and 11 months. Oh, definitely details. Uh, it's, it's scary, though, if you think about it, because, as you said, it is systemic change. It is a lot of changes that we need to make in every single fabric of what we do. And um, I do hope that other nations and regions can wrap up of, you know, the initiatives that's happening in the EU and we can actually follow suit. Because if anything, I, I would know that this is something that impacts all of us, right? It's not like it, it, it's, it's region specific when mm. we have climate change. Climate change impacts all of us in the world. Um, let's let's move on to to something else. I, I want to ask you uh, all. Let's talk predictions for a moment. Now that we know we need to, you know, get our act together in seven years or less. Um, sustainability is something you know that all of the businesses of all sizes we need to pay attention to, and um, green IT is a big component of that. The work we do and how we do it. There are a few quotes I, I wanna I wanna pull from a recent IBM study, which. Andy Barnes from IBM also mentioned in a recent podcast that I had with him. And, and in here, it's, it's fascinating. 42% of CIOs say that sustainability is an area within their organization where technology will have the biggest impact over the next three years. 42%, it's almost half of CIOs. And 70% of sustainability leaders use hybrid cloud as a way to advance their sustainability objectives. So I'll send this question over to you, Sue. How do you expect cloud as a tool for sustainability evolve this year? Um, absolutely. That, that's a great question that a lot of people are thinking about. Um, I'm actually going to take a quick step back. Um, with cloud, of course, you know, whether you're on-prem or hybrid or cloud, you're talking about applications and things running on a server. There's actually a machine behind all of that. So I can speak a little bit to my, my viewpoint of all of this. Like when we're talking about green IT specifically, and it, it's, we talk about green IT because IT consumes large amounts of resources. The impacts are substantial to the overall business. So whether you're a cloud provider, whether you have on-prem, whether you're using either of those things or hybrid, you always have to worry about this huge impact of sustainability of the, the servers and the machines that are actually in that 
that data center. And so focusing on that data center solutions, that's a practical first step towards achieving the overall reduced power consumption and carbon emissions that we're all going for, you know, that we talked about in, in the first portion of this. Everybody is trying to meet their sustainability goals and their, their carbon reduction and, and, and net zero goals. So this is a great place to start with things like that. Um, Speaking for IBM in general, we, we have a corporate framework around sustainability and the different components of a successful sustainability strategy that we, you know, we talk about extensively and we evangelize to different companies and try to help them meet their own goals. And so it kind of, it starts with a building a sustainability roadmap, and then that's followed by a system of record to measure and report on the progress. That's just so important. So then the ESG data management is connected with the systems that run operations to drive transformation, and that includes intelligent assets, facilities, and infrastructure, uh, sustainable supply chains, and circularity, so Jessica, of course, and then responsible computing and green IT. So the green IT there is the, the portion where the Z systems and the Linux One systems come in, which is what I'm representing. And so the Z systems and Linux One, they are enterprise servers. And for a lot of people on this call who, who don't aren't really familiar with them, they're kind of the systems that that run the world. And uh, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but if you know if you make a purchase online, your transaction is going through a mainframe. If if you go to, you know, buy something on Walmart, if you use an ATM, a lot of times that's going through these enterprise servers. And you know, it's the architectural advantages, which is why so many companies have these servers and run them and run their applications on them. You know, when we're comparing to x86, it's a much better per core performance. Uh, there are specialty engines to offload IO processing, perform on-chip AI, data compression and encryption. Uh, they sustain high CPU utilization, and there's really high reliability and availability. So this actually goes back and improves the life cycle and reduces hardware. So a lot of these benefits that are inherent to enterprise systems, they also speak to sustainability. Um, they, they, our system specifically, they fit on a data center. So we're talking about smaller footprints. You know, they're they're big, but they fit on one data center tile. For those of you who who know data centers and hot and cold, air cooling and things like that. So they've always been designed with sustainability and energy efficiency and footprint reduction from the very beginning. It's they're 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 really incredible, but. Um, when we're talking about the green IT, it's all of these factors that go into it and making sure that whether it's on-prem, hybrid, or in the cloud, your data center is running as efficiently and with the lowest power consumption and the smallest footprint and emitting the, the lowest amount of carbon as absolutely possible. So, you know, just to kind of set up a little bit there. And I'm sure that, that Jessica and Tom could speak more to, you know, specifically the cloud portions of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's it's honestly very, we at IBM are always having conversations IT and just full end-to-end -end technology landscapes. This is always an area there that you know folks are trying to upgrade, transform, to modernize, and now being able to specifically have those conversations in the environment of sustainable design and sustainable outcomes. I think it's it's honestly just a really exciting space to kind of extend actually playing off that shared accountability. It's not necessarily, you know, the CIO is just responsible for the ESG data side of things. The shared accountability can also extend to 
the CIO, the CTO role can also be part of that decarbonization journey. Um, as Susan mentioned, it's cloud, it's the data centers, it's also the infrastructure, it's also coding, it's also data usage, um, it's also applications and how applications are, are talking to each other. Um, when all of this can be designed to optimize workloads, it's, you know, a lot of times sustainability is just less. So how are we using less energy consumption? How are we using less? Um, and that's going to have that decarbonization impact as well as a cost reduction impact as well. So kind of a, a double-edged benefit, if you will. Um, but again, it, it does extend, I think, to the full technology landscape, even when we think about sustainable software and coding and programming languages, every piece, again, has an opportunity to optimize. So what we are seeing is actually by switching from one programming language to another, that can actually reduce energy consumption of a particular application up to 50%. And building off of what Susan, Susan shared in terms of um, hybrid cloud, and when we think about container platforms versus virtual machines, um, running work workloads in a container platform can actually reduce annual infrastructure costs by 75%. So again, that's, you know, energy efficiency as well as cost reduction. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about sort of the business case for sustainability, if you will. Um, but just sort of putting in a teaser there that uh, when we do think about that full landscape and the shared business benefit as well as environmental benefit, it's just very evident when we think about the IT landscape. Um, but Tom, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. You've covered a lot of ground, both of you there. Thank you for that. You haven't left much for me. <laughs> but um, what I will say is uh, I agree with everything you've said. One caveat I would put in, though, is while it's really great to have servers and data centers that are incredibly efficient with low PUEs, etc., one thing that you also need to be aware of is the energy going into your data center and where that's coming from. Because if you have, for example, an on-premise system and you're working in somewhere like the Nordics or Iceland or somewhere where the grid is 100% renewable and then you move your workload to the cloud and maybe you're in an AWS data center in Virginia or in Poland, you know, where the grid is incredibly dirty and full of coal-fired power, then you don't necessarily reduce your emissions. In fact, you might actually increase them. So being extremely aware of where your data and your compute are hosted is vitally important for when you do move stuff to the cloud. Because as I said, it might actually, and you know, it, it's not intuitive, you might actually be increasing your emissions. Obviously, if you move it to a cloud in a country that has a low amount of carbon in its electricity, then you're fine. But just be aware of where it's being hosted as a, you know, because it, it, you might have unintended consequences. That is so important, Tom, that you are so right. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier that, you know, it might be on more of a federal or, you know, kind of a country level where they start implementing mandates for ensuring that that the energy is, is coming from renewable resources and sustainable places because, you know, the everyday person might not even realize that they, they are using energy from a, a really horrible source. That reminds me a lot of the discussions of late also about scope three emissions and do we even know where everything is coming from and how do we account for that? Um, but challenges comes opportunities, isn't it? For us to do to do something better. Um, the tech is there, the data is there. Um, I think for what we can do and for what humans are able to do, 
I, I do. I am hopeful that um, that we are going to be trending upwards. There's going to be a lot of discussions around um, data and reporting, so it's going to be a very busy year. Um, and that actually brings us to a good point. Um, good intentions, they don't always immediately translate to action and, and positive impact. There is another study that there was a very interesting uh, data point in there that talks about reporting and data. Is 86% of executives said their organizations have a sustainability strategy in place, but yet only 35% had acted on that strategy. This is coming from an IBM Institute for Business Value Survey that covers the manufacturing-oriented industries. But here comes the part that is a little bit concerning. Only one in three had integrated sustainability objectives and metrics into the business processes. And CEOs cited unclear ROI and economic benefits, as well as a lack of insights from the data as their greatest challenges to achieving sustainability objectives. Um, that is a very, very scary stat. Uh, it's good that they have a strategy in place. It's good that they're thinking about doing something. But the fact that more than half of them said they don't quite know where they, how to account for the benefits and how to get the insights from the data they have tells us that there's a lot more work that needs to be done. How do we translate talk into action and help them move forward? And I'm curious to hear, what are some examples of companies that we have seen that have done that um, well? And Jessica, you want to start? Sure. I think that um, the unclear ROI and economic benefits, it's definitely something that I hear in, in initial conversations with clients is we know we should do this. We know we want to do this. We know that this contributes to targets that our company has set. Um, but everything comes with investment and everything still comes with proving out that ROI. And so, you know, we do need to support in terms of proving out what that business case is going to be for these sustainability projects and sustainability initiatives. So I think we know at this point that that these sustainability projects are, are good for the planet. But at the end of the day, we're also seeing that that is good for business as well. So we're really working hand in hand to kind of quantify that for our clients to be able to put that cost reduction or that increase in revenue and profit. Um, or maybe it's something more qualitative in terms of, you know, the morale of employees working for a, you know, sustainability focused enterprise, or maybe it's the brand loyalty of being able able to engage consumers to be sustainable shoppers by um, shopping with your company. So I think, you know, first being able to help our clients really quantify that unclear ROI and turn that into a clear ROI and clear economic benefits is always a place to start, as well as the data piece that you mentioned. So really kind of bringing that visibility and transparency to whether that's ESG data or just helping an enterprise understand where that data is sitting. I think that that's really the step one on this journey. Again, a lot of 
clients and enterprises know that they want to do this, but these two challenges and concerns, I think, are directly correlated to the where do I start, how do I start? So I think Susan mentioned earlier, you know, kind of helping to co-create that sustainability roadmap, really anchoring that in materiality, what is going to have the biggest environmental and social impact in terms of where a company can focus those sustainability dollars and sustainability investments into reaching the targets that have been set. So I think by having that roadmap, anchoring it in materiality, helping understand where the data is set is sitting, and then again, bringing in that quantifiable business case is absolutely where we want to start to hopefully shift some of these metrics. And I think with that, I'll, I'll pass to Susan because I know she wanted to highlight some client case studies here. Uh, yeah, of course. And, and also just, you know, in, in response, one thing I said, I, I just started the sustainability journey only about a year ago. But uh, one of the first things that I realized is that when we're talking with people, they, they really have a greenwashing radar on. So one of the speed bumps that, that we're always encountering is we're trying to talk about sustainability, but we're, we, we need to talk about it with transparency and with actual facts. Nobody just wants to hear, yes, we're doing everything green and sustainable and environmentally friendly, they, they want to actually see it happening. And so when we're talking about helping clients and, and folks move in a sustainable direction, we always need to keep in mind that we need to do it with that transparency and really helping them see exactly what is going on, for example, in their data centers or their businesses as a whole, instead of just saying, you know, just buy this machine, it consumes less power. Um, yeah, just, just some case studies. One that I that I wanted to mention. It's uh, not specifically talking to the kind of accounting, but all of the things that we do when we're helping to make a client more sustainable. There are different tools and products out there that can then prove that, you know, every, every client wants to not only be sustainable, but also be able to prove their sustainability. I mean, that's very important. You go to any website for a company these days and nine times out of 10, it will highlight something about how sustainable their company is. And so then this kind of plays into it. But so for example, um, BBVA, it's a global financial group in Latin America, and they had a previous generation, it, it's the Z system systems, they had Z13. And those servers were in their data centers in Spain and Mexico. And they wanted to upgrade to the, at the time, the current generation Z15 servers. Um, we are now up to Z16. But uh, for all the traditional reasons that make those Z systems so amazing, the enterprise level security, privacy, resiliency. But in the process, they also achieved significant energy and environmental improvements. So they did do a study. Um, they have ways to track all of these metrics. We're, we're finding out that a lot of times in the past, they've done it with spreadsheets and, and just, you know, paper calculations and talking among each other. And, you know, we're finding new ways to make all of this accounting and monitoring better. Um, but uh, at, at the time, they did do a study and they show that upgrading to the Z15s that immediately resulted in 50% less energy consumption, 50%. And it was expected to cut the amount of emitted carbon gases in half over approximately five years. So when we're talking that, what, six years and 11 months till 2030, you know, if we're cutting the carbon gases in half over five years, then that's a big step in that direction. And so, you know, I, I have equivalent stories also for our Linux One system, which, uh, Theo, you were talking about Andy Barnes and uh, that system just recently won the SEAL Award, which I know that he mentioned when you were speaking with him a couple, a couple uh, weeks ago. But um, just 
doing the sustainable things, making their data centers more, more sustainable, and then actually being able to prove it and rolling it all the way up even to the CSOs of the businesses. I, I love that. Yes, yeah. Andy mentioned that in in our um, chat that you guys literally just won the award. I think that was right before we talked to. That was amazing. And congratulations. Um, I will share the link for the BBVA case study as well on the um, on the page once we wrap up because I think that is fascinating uh, to be able to to Jessica's point earlier and to your point to be able to actually quantify it not just saying that hey you know it is it is something good for the planet to do but to actually have numbers behind that uh, that that is that is that is amazing Tom do you have anything else you want to add sure yeah I mean one of the most fundamental things that companies have to do to actually, you know, start this journey is they need to digitize. They also need to set targets. And it's not just enough to set targets. I mean, I was a bit kind of um, taking a pot shot at the targets set by the Singaporean government, comparing them to the ones set in Europe. But it is that kind of thing. You need to set not just any old targets, but you need to set what are called science-based targets. And there's a, an organization called the Science-Based Targets Initiative. They're a, a nonprofit and they work with companies to make sure that the com that these targets that companies set are actually grounded in science around the Paris Climate Accord. So if you take the kind of templates that the Science-Based Targets Initiative have and use them for your industry, you can then submit them to the Science-Based Target Institute and they will grade them and you can then uh, go back time and time again and, you know, refresh, talk about what improvements you've made, report to them. And that means that you are setting proper targets, proper targets that are scientifically verified. I mean, I, I can't underestimate the importance of, of doing the, setting the right targets because setting kind of willy-nilly targets that you're never actually going to do anything about or that are, you know, if you say, I'll reduce my emissions 10% by 2050, that's meaningless, you know, because uh, it doesn't get anywhere. But if you commit to reducing them by you know, if you're in a particular industry and the science-based targets say you should reduce them 50% by 2030, you sign up to reduce them 50% by 2030, and then you go down that route. I interviewed the CEO of the Science-Based Target Institute on my Climate Confident podcast a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things he said was that very often when companies do sign up to do this, once they start the initiative, they actually find it was easier than they thought it was going to be. And they find that they're saving money in doing it. So, you know, for all these reasons, it's really important that companies do this kind of thing. And, you know, sorry for banging on about it for so long, but it's I, I do think it's important. And I mentioned digitization at the start as well. That's hugely important as well, because if you haven't digitized your infrastructure, then you won't know what your emissions are in the first place. You won't get that data back from your devices, whatever they are, wherever they are. They need to be digitized and they need to have comms making sure that they can report their data back and that it can be recorded in the kind of system or record that Susan mentioned earlier. 
Tom, I think it's just a great point that, you know, we need data for, as Susan mentioned, the credibility, the visibility, the transparency. But I think also it, it directly data allows us to make informed decisions, informed targets, informed actions. And I think that, you know, across the board, it can be that just that missing link and, and in turn provides that credibility, provides that transparency and provides the visibility that, that Susan mentioned. And it also helps to make make the case for continuing on the sustainability path. You know, companies, TCO is a main contributor to making change. You know, everybody wants to do things as cheaply as possible, of course. And and it's it's not very obvious that doing the sustainable thing is actually oftentimes the the, the cheaper path. Like Jessica, I know with the supply chain, um, I, I was listening to a, a, another podcast recently and talking about how a lot of times businesses will have their products manufactured overseas because it's cheaper, but they don't actually look at the entire chain of that that product with the shipping and then all of the carbon offsets and they're not offsets, but the, the, you know, the, 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 the carbon that comes out of just having a boat crossing the ocean and, and all of those different factors playing into it. So having all of this observability and, and the data, it can help show that and hopefully drive a little bit of change. Yeah, Susan, that's that's a great point. I think similarly as you know, sustainability and change is not linear and we're focused on systems change, I think there's also, you know, a network of data and the data across the system. Um, and when we are able to leverage data to make those informed decisions, it helps with those trade-offs so that those aren't being made in a silo. So, you know, carbon emission, when selecting suppliers to extend your example, it's not just what's the lowest cost supplier or what's the lowest, you know, the shortest route that the supplier is going to take to deliver XYZ goods or commodities to a manufacturing center or from a fulfillment center to last mile delivery. But it's actually taking all of those trade-offs across all of the environmental factors, all the social factors across upstream and downstream. That's a lot of information and that's a lot of data. But if we're able to put that data into the hands of supply chain and procurement professionals and allow them to make those informed decisions and informed trade-offs across many dimensions, that is what's going to truly, I think, drive that more transformational and kind of systemic impact. I just wanted to add as well, because sorry, Theo, I forgot <laughs> to to I forgot the second part of your question, which was about some examples of companies that have done that. And um, I've got a whole bunch of them because on the on the Climate Confident podcast now I've published something like 104, 105 episodes. And a lot of them are these kind of positive stories. One that stuck with me recently was I was speaking to um, Magali Anderson is the woman's name. Magali is the chief sustainability officer of Holsim. Holsim, if you're unfamiliar, are one of the largest, they are, sorry, they are the largest producer of cement and concrete products outside of Asia. And of course, the cement and concrete products industry is one which has an enormous carbon footprint. And so uh, Magali was talking about all the different things that they are doing to reduce their carbon footprint. And it was really interesting. But one of the most interesting ones that she mentioned was they're changing their business model. So not just the physical stuff of reducing the carbon intensity of uh, the actual concrete products that they're producing or the cement that they're producing, but actually changing their business model so that if, for example, 
a construction company comes to them and says, we want 100,000 cubic meters of concrete for this bridge that we're building. They'll reply back and they'll go, actually, we'll work with you. We'll have our structural engineers work with you. We'll sell you 30,000 cubic meters of concrete. And our our designers will design the same bridge that you want built, but using 70% less concrete with the same structural integrity. And that way... You know, they're in in one go. They've reduced the carbon emissions associated with building that bridge by seventy percent, and they charge a little extra for the um, the extra services they're adding on in terms of designing the bridge to use that much less concrete. But they have they're not short of demand for concrete, so they're not they're not worried about the reduction in demand that they that they uh, that this entails because they have then low carbon concrete products that they can sell as well. So it was a really interesting initiative, I thought, on their part. Oh, that's a cool story. Um, I can follow up with another client story if you guys want to hear about One for Linux One, uh, which is also speaking kind of to the the TCO portion of this. Um, of course, whenever we're going to talk with potential you know clients and potential clients about upgrading or moving to Z Systems or Linux One, a lot of studies go into their current situation and and what are their needs, what what are their goals, and you know sustainability is only one tiny portion of that, and then TCO being a great driver in the solutions that they go with. But uh, Phoenix Systems, I can talk about, and they're a rapidly growing cloud service provider, a startup, but but getting much bigger, doing fantastic things uh, for confidential computing, and they're in Switzerland. So their applications processes, thousands of investment funds and millions of customer accounts representing nearly a half trillion in assets worldwide. So important business, they wanna keep it safe and secure. Um, And they came to us talking about Linux One. So they wanted to expand their operations and keep efficiency high, but also keep the costs as low as possible. So they did end up choosing Linux One for their new high security cloud services offering. And in the process, they cut their data center floor space by eight times. So Tom talking about a lot less concrete and uh, decrease their energy consumption and maintenance. So very cool stuff coming from Phoenix Systems. I, I love those stories because it shows that, yes, it can be done. And here's a concrete example for that. I just shared uh, the case studies that you all mentioned on the page as well for anyone who is interested to go back and reference. I do want to have a quick follow-up question for all of you, though, because that's something I've been hearing quite a bit in the last few months, is given the economic climate that we are all going through, um, there's a lot of uncertainty. You see a lot of companies announcing layoffs and massive layoffs, if you will, across different sectors. Have we seen any changes in sentiment or actions from different you know, companies saying, well, yeah, this is a great idea, but, or are people sensing, wait, this is a good way, right? A tipping point, if you will, for us to actually do something because as you, as you all said earlier, it not only helps the environment, also helps the bottom line and it drives positive brand value and sentiment um, what do you what do you guys hear uh, from different clients? So I'll, I'll jump in there because <clears throat> I think to an extent you're right. We are going through a rough time, but we have been really since the onset of COVID. Um, and at the start when COVID started, 
I kind of put my head in my hands and went, okay, this is going to take the headlines uh, for the next, you know, six, eight months, whatever it is. And people are going to dump any sustainability plans they had because, you know, this will take priority. But the opposite happened. I, I don't know. I still don't know for sure why, but sustainability, instead of going down the order of priority for organizations seem to go up and has stayed up and will stay up. And it will stay up because of the kind of targets that I mentioned earlier, the EU's 55% by 2030 target. That'll make sure that for the next seven years, it'll be top of mind for most organizations within the EU. And not just within the EU, because one of the other things the EU are doing is the EU have announced a what's called a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is basically just a carbon border tax, which means any goods coming into the EU from high carbon countries that don't have a carbon tax will be taxed on the way in to kind of level the playing field. So this is going to become a a thing ongoing. And uh, it's... it, it means that um, we're starting to see regulations to make sure that it happens. And it's not just in the EU. I mean, the SEC put out their request for comments recently. Uh, well, it was it was middle of last year. And their new regulations are saying that they're going to start requiring companies to report their carbon emissions. All publicly traded companies would have to start reporting their carbon emissions. And not just uh, their carbon emissions, but their carbon emissions out to scope three, starting in the next year or two, depending on the size of the organization. And not just will they have to report their carbon emissions, not just out to scope three, but also these reports will have to be auditable. So suddenly you're going to start to see... Uh, publicly traded companies in the US and the EU required to report their carbon emissions and uh, be judged on it because these would be audited, auditable reports, presumably audited. Uh, and that'll mean there'll be a whole new level of rigor required to the reporting, which is badly, badly needed. And I, I think the this will require organizations to have a huge shift in mindset because up until quite recently, the sustainability organizations within companies very often reported into the marketing uh, team, the CMO. Whereas, you know, and that kind of tells its own story. Whereas now that these reports are going to be required to be audited, it will mean that the reporting function for sustainability will report not into the CMO, but the CFO. And, you know, that will lead to a whole shift in mindset, I think. And one thing that we've noticed is that, um, oh, I'm sorry, Jessica. Um, I'll I'll just say something really quickly here, uh, is that when we're speaking with folks, if a person has a tie to environmental consciousness and sustainability, that's really important. So we were talking about the different geographies For example, in Europe, the companies are very interested in having sustainable data centers, much more so than other parts of the of the world, because their people are right now going through, uh, you know, gas shortages and and all the the power rules and things like that. And so I I think over the pandemic, things happened like we saw the photos online of India with clear skies and and just things like that that really made an impact on individuals that the environment is actually important and doing things sustainable sustainably is actually important so i think that plays a small factor as well i agree with both of you i think i was just going to add that 
to, to Tom's point, I don't think that we're seeing it slow down by any means. I think that we may see, you know, companies and CSOs and, and folks that have sustainability or ESG in their titles. I think what we're just seeing is everyone's motivated by something different in terms of why this is still a priority. So for some folks, for some enterprises, for some parts of the world, that's absolutely going to be regulatory and compliance. For some folks, that's absolutely going to be financial value. One of the um, clients that we work with, um, a, a large global CPG manufacturer, um, we helped you know develop a return on sustainability investment, if you will, an ROSI of over a billion dollars in financial benefits over five years by just addressing cost savings in their supply chain, um, all with sustainable impact at the end of the day. So there's the cost and the financial piece. Um, and then very pointedly, I, I was speaking with the CSO of a global beverage manufacturer and distributor, um, and he he pointedly just said, if, if no one's going to buy this beer and no one's going to buy these bottles, we're not going to be able to do business in the future. And so whether that's an environmental push or a social push. So I think very pointedly, Again, everyone has that different motivator, but regardless of what that underlying factor is, um, I'm, I'm not seeing that slow down right now. I, I love that. And you are so on point is there are different stakeholders that are pushing companies in different directions, be it shareholder, be it their own employees or be it the market. They are demanding something different. So this is hopeful. And I love that. Um but Tom, you, you did you did say something about challenges, you know, change in mindset that we will need when it comes to execution. And there was something I came across that talked about uh, South Pole Climate Consultancy. They did a survey of 1,200 large companies. And according to the survey results, and that goes to the reporting part, Tom, that you were talking about, a quarter of these companies, they did not plan to publicize the net zero achievements beyond what is required by regulation, the bare-bone minimum. And we know that cutting transmissions to where we need reaching that target that we talked about in the very beginning of the conversation is going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of time. And there is no magic bullet, a uh, single plan, if you will, per se, that we can follow. What are some of the, the things that organizations need to keep in mind as we navigate through all the regulatory requirements and all of the pressures that companies get from inside and out? And what are some of the positive changes? Um, let's end this with a positive note. What are some of the positive changes and things that um, you have seen? Um, wanted to see if, if you guys have anything to share. Jessica, you want to start? Sure. Um, I think, honestly, this really is where we need to lean into that that positivity statement. Um, again, I think coming out of COP and um, listening to a lot of the conversations, there was a bit of negativity in the air in terms of really calling out enterprises where there is greenwashing or maybe there isn't that credibility and visibility and transparency when it comes to data. And so what I would say here is we don't want this to turn into sort of a fear um, or a space where companies don't have the freedom to also make mistakes at the risk of not making progress. And so what I mean by that is at this point, I think incremental improvement is better than nothing at all. At the end of the day, we want to work towards systems change and transformational change, but we have to be okay with baby steps. Um, we have to also fight to have really fast baby steps so that we can, like Tom started at the beginning of the conversation and um, 
seven years, less than seven years, six years and 11 months. So we do need to move fast, but we can't let perfection and we can't let transformational progress get in the way of some progress. So I think leaving the space for companies to celebrate wins and to feel that they can share what they are doing in the right direction um, and bring positivity to that and, and evangelize those stories instead of evangelizing headlines that get at that negativity and at that some of that greenwashing. Hey, I can't agree more. Evangelize the positive stories and celebrate small wins. Uh, Tom and Susan, do you guys have anything you want to add? Sure, yeah. So I think companies that are not talking about their sustainability initiatives are missing a trick, missing a huge trick. I mean, it's already been mentioned how customers value this and how the investment community are looking particularly for ESG strong uh, products to invest in. Banks are also looking at companies and their ESG record and they're pricing their capital accordingly. So if you have a good ESG story to tell, you can get access to cheaper capital, which is fantastic. But another aspect which we haven't talked about is the whole employee thing. I mean, companies who have a good ESG story to tell find it far easier to recruit and to retain good employees. And that's something that absolutely everyone should be, you know, every organization should be mindful of, at least because particularly I know a lot of people are laying people off at the moment. But at the same time, companies that are laying people off are also taking people on. It's, it's a weird dynamic. So as they're looking to take people on and keep good people, you know, having that good story to tell means you will find it easier to uh, recruit and to retain good people. Uh, that That's one side of things. On the other, the, the second part of your question was what positive changes have we seen? Well, I mean, there are so many. Um, if you think that the cost of the, the, the price of generating electricity today, the cheapest source of electricity generation today is renewables. Both uh, wind and solar today are cheaper than any other form of electricity generation. And that's a huge win. And not alone are they cheaper, but also the cost of electricity storage in the likes of lithium ion batteries is cratering as well. So the cost of lithium ion batteries is, you know, about 5% of what it was 15 years ago. And not only is the price fallen, but the energy density of the batteries has tripled in the same time. So they become far cheaper uh, to make and they've also become far more energy dense. They can store a lot more electricity. And that's a huge win because now those cheaper batteries can be used in conjunction with the cheaper renewables and the combination of renewables plus storage is now in many areas cheaper than fossil fuel alternatives, the likes of gas power plants. And not alone are they cheaper to uh, build and operate, they're also quicker to build and operate because... If you want to build a coal-fired power plant or a gas-fired power plant or any of these things, the amount of uh, environmental impact assessments and things that you have to put together to get it from, you know, greenfield site to producing electricity takes in the order of six to eight years. Whereas you want to build a solar farm or a wind farm, 
your your time to producing electricity is cut by about a half. So it's faster to deploy renewables and it's cheaper to deploy renewables. And I mean, that's without even going near the electrification of transportation or so many other good stories. But I, I, I'll shut up now and let someone else get a word in. I can feel your passion and energy through the through the screen, Tom, even though I can't <laughs> see you across from me. And that's a great thing. I love that. Um, Sue, do you want do you have anything you want to add? Oh gosh, I think Jessica and Tom covered that beautifully. Round of applause. Um, before we move on to the last question, I want to remind the audience if you would like to follow any of our wonderful speakers today, just click on their picture and you'll be able to follow them as well as message them. So now before we close out, um, one last question. I wanna I wanna give each one of you some time to respond. What gives you hope for the new year? Since we are still in January. And Jessica? Sure. I will try to keep this one short, sweet, and simple. And I coincidentally, I'm going to end how I began, although not planned. Um, I think, so I know Theodore, you and I were both recently at NRF and just got back late last week, um, which was an amazing opportunity to connect with so many clients across all different aspects of retail. Um, and so, you know, had probably 50 conversations with different um, stakeholders at different clients. And at each one of those conversations, I started off with the question, you know, is sustainability part of your job title? And I think every single person said no, but that it is a part of their job and that they, it, it is tangentially aligned to what they do. And they do feel responsibility in terms of their role, playing a role in sustainability. And that was what I was hoping to hear. Um, but I think really gives me hope for the new year when we do think about this idea of shared accountability, whether it's the collaboration of private and public, whether it's the collaboration of private sector enabling consumers to make better and more informed decisions or provide a sustainable company for employees to work for. Um, I think that that really just gave me hope in terms of this idea of shared accountability really coming, um, coming real, becoming real and becoming tangible. I love that shared accountability um, hopefully will lead to shared prosperity. Uh, Sue? Uh, mine is actually something that I mentioned a little earlier. It's it's just the, the greater visibility of the need for sustainability and environmental consciousness because of the pandemic and all of the things that, that came from that, people not receiving the products that they needed because of supply chain issues. And then again, you know, the, the India, they were actually able to see the sky and see the buildings across town and everything. And, and just the raised awareness that all of that contributed to now starting to trickle down into business decisions that will actually lead to a more sustainable business culture. I'm, I'm excited about that, just, just seeing that ramping up. And last but not least, Tom. Thanks, Theo. Yeah, so lots of things. Um, lots of things give me hope. Uh, I, I mentioned already the, the whole energy transition and how renewables are winning out there. The electrification of transportation is happening as well. Uh, I mentioned as well my Climate Confident podcast, and one of the reasons I started that uh, back in 2020 was because there was so much bad news out there about climate. And, you know, with good reason, there's a lot, there is a lot of 
very bad things happening. But there's also some really good things happening. And because the media generally likes to highlight bad news stories, there's the old maxim that if it bleeds, it leads. You don't get to hear those good news stories happening as much. So I, I decided to start the Climate Confident podcast in order to highlight the good news stories so that you know, people could hear them and then be inspired to take similar action themselves. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I also did it a bit for my own mental health because <laughs> I was starting to get a bit despairing of all the news I was hearing. But now I'm, I'm hearing all these great news stories from climate every week, talking to people who are doing incredible things. And that really gives me hope because some of the some of the stories people tell on that podcast are just absolutely amazing. I mentioned what Hulsim are doing, but, you know, there's a hundred and something episodes published now of some amazing stories of what people are doing. And that's what gives me hope. That and the fact that, you know, the podcast is getting so many downloads. There is an appetite for this kind of thing. You know, it's it's really impressive. People's levels of interest in this have gone way, way up. That also gives me hope. I couldn't have said it any better. Um, indeed, I think just looking at my calendar for January alone and all the news that keeps coming to my inbox is all about how can we do more? How can we do better? How can we capture the momentum and do more for our planet and our society, not just environmental, but social. So it is good news all around. I do hope that we do not lose this momentum going into the year because we do get distracted quite a bit. Um, another thing I want to add that gives me hope is looking at even from a regulatory perspective, the recent Inflation Reduction Act that should increase our country's share of carbon free electricity. And by the latest count is up to 66 percent by 2030. Um, so there is a lot of investment going on from the federal perspective, as well as from the private sector, going back to our original point earlier in the conversation. So. Hopefully all of that, um, in addition to, I believe there is a separate greenhouse gap reduction fund that is going in, 8 billion of that that's going in to support low income and disadvantaged communities. Um, all of that is, is great news. So let's focus on the positives. Let's focus on the stories that matter, stories that can bring hope and inspiration to all of us and going into this year. So thank you so much all for the wonderful conversation. I know that uh, we can keep going, but I do want to be respectful of everyone's time. So we will end this conversation. Um, and again, for the audience, if you would like to follow any of our speakers, do click on their picture and do a follow a message. And uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks, Tom and Sue and Jessica.